Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, the Feast of Christ the King. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, November 21st, 2010. In her new book, Nomad, the outspoken critic of Islam, Ayan Hirsi Ali, questions whether one can be both a good Muslim and a good American. Muslims can answer that question for themselves, but I was struck by the tension inherent in Ali's observation that there's an inherent conflict of interest between religious identity and political allegiance. Her question looms large this Sunday when Christians end the liturgical year by celebrating the Feast of Christ the King and next week marking the first Sunday in Advent and the beginning of a new liturgical year. To what extent, then, can you be a good American and a good Christian? Their earliest followers of Jesus, and especially his detractors, used the political language of kingship to describe who he was, what he said, and what he did. Every king enjoys a reign, a rule, and a kingdom. Jesus was no exception. His very first words of public ministry proclaimed that in him the kingdom of God is at hand. Mark 1.15 But as we shall see, his ideas about kingship radically subvert our own normal definitions of political power. <clears throat> at the birth of Jesus, pagan magi inquired in Matthew 2.2, 2, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Their worship of Jesus with extravagant gifts remind us that Jesus is not only the king of the Jews, he's the king of all nations and peoples. In contrast to our propensity to privilege one ethnicity or people above another, to view one's own people as exceptional to God, and to exclude other people who were different, the pagans from Persia show how King Jesus welcomes all people everywhere. Whereas the Magi worshipped King Jesus, King Herod tried to kill him. We don't normally associate the birth of a baby with the demise of political power, but Matthew does. His political parody is writ large. Matthew contrasts two rival kings who rule not only over one people, the Jews, but over all the world. This is a baby, says Luke 1.52, who would bring down rulers from their thrones. So it's no wonder that in the 1980s the government of Guatemala prohibited the public reading of Mary's subversive Magnificat. If Jesus is king and lord, then Caesar, Herod, Pharaoh, Pilate, and Mammon are not lords. They are posers to be deposed. The language of kingship also characterizes the accounts of Jesus' death. His triumphal entry into the clogged streets of Jerusalem on Good Friday was a deeply ironic, highly symbolic, and deliberately provocative act. It was an enacted parable, or street theater, that dramatized his subversive mission and message. 
ride a donkey because he was too tired to walk or because he wanted a good view of the crowds. The Oxford scholar George Caird characterized Jesus' triumphal entry as more like a planned political demonstration than the religious celebration that we sentimentalize today. Marcus Borg and John Dominic Crossan imagine not one, but two political processions entering Jerusalem that Friday morning in the spring of A.D. 30. In a bold parody of imperial politics, King Jesus descended the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem from the east, fulfilling Zechariah's ancient prophecy. Look, your king is coming to you, gentle and riding on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus was later dragged to the Roman governor's palace for three reasons, all of which were political. We read in Luke 23, 1 and 2, We found this fellow subverting the nation, opposing payment of taxes to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. In short, Jesus died as a politically subversive criminal. Pilate met the angry mob outside the praetorium, then grilled Jesus alone back inside. Are you the king of the Jews? My kingdom is not of this world, Jesus replied. My kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, mocked Pilate. Yes, you are right in saying that I am a king. Pilate went back outside, declared that Jesus was innocent, then had his soldiers beat, flog, and humiliate him with purple robes and a crown of thorns befitting a man whom he miscalculated was a political failure. Hail, O King of the Jews, they mocked. Back outside, the mob hounded Pilate. If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. Pilate thus found himself sandwiched between angering the mob and betraying his emperor. And so he caved in. Here is your king. Shall I crucify your king? We have no king but Caesar, they responded. This tragic reduction of human identity to politics characterizes our own age today. When Pilate crucified Jesus, he insulted the Jews one last time by fastening a notice to the cross written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek, one which he knew would offend him, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. They objected, of course, don't write the King of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be king of the Jews. But it was too late. What I have written, I have written, said Pilate. To be sure, with his mockery of the Jews, he wrote much more than he ever could have known or imagined. For later believers would worship Jesus not only as king of the Jews, but also as the king of kings, 1 Timothy 6.15 the king of the ages, Revelation 9.3, and ruler of the kings of the earth, Revelation 1.5. 
When Jesus insisted that his kingdom was not of this world, he didn't mean that it was merely spiritual or that it was relegated to a future age beyond history or in heaven. Far from it, as his detractors rightly surmised. In its simplest terms, the kingship that Jesus announced and embodied is what life would be like on earth here and now if God were king and the rulers of this world were not. Imagine if God ruled the nations, and not Obama, Medvedev, Kim Jong-il, Robert Mugabe, or Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. Every aspect of personal and communal life would experience a radical reversal in such a kingdom. The political, economic, and social subversions would be almost endless. Peacemaking instead of warmongering. Liberation, not exploitation sacrifice rather than subjugation, mercy, not vengeance, care for the vulnerable instead of privileges for the powerful, generosity instead of greed, humility rather than hubris, and inclusion rather than exclusion. The ancient Hebrews had a marvelous world for all this, shalom or human well-being. And so in the texts for this week, we read how Jesus is a king who gathers rather than scatters, Jeremiah 23. Instead of waging war, he makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire, Psalm 46, 9. Jesus the king welcomes criminals, Luke 23, 43. And from the epistle of Colossians, in the mission and message of Jesus, says Paul, God intends to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood. Colossians 1.20 And so peace and reconciliation for all of creation are the signs of the kingdom of God in Jesus. The Lord's Prayer just might be the most subversive of all political acts. We pray, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. People who live and pray this way have a very different agenda than Caesar's agenda, whether Republican or Democrat, whether capitalist, socialist, or communist. <clears throat> whether democratic or theocratic, for they have entered a kingdom, pledged their allegiance to a ruler, and submitted to the reign of Christ the King. And now for further reflection. Why has Christianity embraced political power down through the ages? In what sense can prayer be political and subversive? What did Jesus mean in Mark 12:17 when he said, Render to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's? And what did Paul mean in Romans 13, 1-7 when he told believers to submit to the governing authorities? Consider the words of Peter in 1 Peter 2.17, 
fear God, honor the king. Or Paul's words in Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven. this week, I reviewed Desmond Tutu and Info Tutu. The title of the book, Made for Goodness, and Why This Makes All the Difference. New York, Harper One, 2010, 206 pages. Growing up under South African apartheid, Desmond Tutu has experienced enough injustice, oppression, and cruelty to embitter any normal person. But the winner of the 1984 Nobel Peace Prize and chair of South Africa's Truth and Reconciliation Commission refuses to succumb to anger or futility. In fact, in this book, he proclaims a wonderfully positive message that each and every person is fundamentally good. Goodness is the essence of what it means to be human, says Tutu. Rooted as it is in the first few pages of the Bible, where God declares six times that all he made is good, and then a seventh time that it is all very good, Genesis 1.31. Tutu doesn't deny the reality, the reality of sin, suffering, and evil, but they are not our essential nature. They are aberrations. What is normative is goodness. Wrongness runs against the grain of creation. The liberating implications of this, he tries to show, is that we need not try to be good in order to earn God's love, but simply accept that we are accepted. In successive chapters, Tutu considers why God allows evil and suffering, what it means to exercise free choice, the role of habit in forming our moral character, and the practices of repentance, prayer, and silence. Throughout the book, Tutu draws upon the Hausa word Ubuntu, which means something like tend and befriend. Ubuntu insists that we all need each other, that we can only be fully and truly human by acknowledging our interconnectedness. My humanity is bound up with your humanity. In addition, Tutu makes liberal use of his personal experiences of apartheid. Nelson Mandela, for example, chose the path of race rather than rage and wrath. Although he writes from his specifically Christian vision as an Anglican priest and returns numerous times to the parable of the prodigal son, there are only about a dozen references to Jesus in the book. He's just as likely to invoke the Dalai Lama, the peace advocate Thich Thak Han, Gandhi, Muslim friends, and in one place, even Oprah. No doubt this is an effort to make the broadest possible appeal. A poem ends each chapter to provoke meditation and reflection. One oddity of the book's style was referring to his daughter and ostensible co-author always and only in the third person. The title of the book, Made for Goodness, Desmond Tutu with his daughter, Empho Tutu.
For film this week, we go to the West Bank for an Israeli and Palestinian film. The title is Ajami, from the year 2009. Ajami is a neighborhood in Jaffa, where Christians, Jews, and Muslims live under the constant threat of violence. This film revolves around five main characters whose families embody not only the tensions between these three groups, but especially the tensions within and among their own people. Omar must hire protection for his family in order to resist extortionists who will retaliate because his uncle shot one of their Bedouin clan. He also loves the Christian girl Hadir. Omar's friend Malik is an illegal Palestinian worker who's trying to get $70,000, $75,000 for his sick mother's operation. Dondo is a brutal Israeli policeman who nevertheless tenderly loves his father and his two little girls. Binge is deep into drugs and has an Israeli girlfriend. Much as in the movie Crash, the lives of these five people and their families collide and no one is any better for it. Ajami was nominated for the Best Foreign Film and has also received numerous international awards. It's in Arabic, Hebrew, and English, with English subtitles. Ajami, 2009. And for poetry this week, in keeping with the Feast of Christ the King, we've posted a poem by the Jesuit priest Daniel Berrigan. Daniel Berrigan was born in 1921. And the title of this poem is simply Credo. I can only tell you what I believe. I believe I cannot be saved by foreign policies. I cannot be saved by the sexual revolution. I cannot be saved by the gross national product. I cannot be saved by nuclear deterrence. I cannot be saved by aldermen priests, artists, plumbers, city planners, social engineers, nor by the Vatican, nor by the World Buddhist Association, nor by Hitler, nor by Joan of Arc, nor by angels and archangels, nor by powers and dominions. I can be saved only by Jesus Christ. Daniel Berrigan, Credo. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, November 21st, 2010. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.